Lacrosse All-Stars presents In Your Face LaxCast. Unfiltered opinions on the most controversial topics in the game of lacrosse. I'm Ryan Danahy, former Division I college and pro player and Division I college coach, currently living and coaching in the city of Philadelphia. I'm joined with my co-host, Andy Towers, the legend, former Division I college head coach, MLL All-Star, three-time All-American, and arguably the best to ever play the midfield position. Each show, we dive into the world of lacrosse from high school, college, to pro, as well as bring on special guests. You can subscribe to us via iTunes and check us out on Twitter at InYourFaceLax for more information. Enjoy the show. On board with us today is Christian Sweezy. You may know him from his recent appearance to Twitter, dropping knowledge on your timeline with Baltimore PC lacrosse tweets. But Sweezy is a bit more than just that. Christian has spent the better part of 20 years as a writer and editor for the Washington Post. He's written more than 2,700 pieces about high school, college sports, breaking news, and feature stories. He's also been a contributor for Inside Lacrosse for over 15 years, writing weekly columns on college cross. He's the winner of the 2009 Doyle Smith Media Award and also the recipient of the 2005 U.S. Lacrosse Potomac Chapter Man of the Year. Couldn't be more pumped to have the Greyhound along on with us today. Thanks a lot for coming on with us, Christian. Oh, it's my yes. pleasure. I'm thrilled you guys have. Hope to have you, Squeeze. So, Squeeze, in all your years of covering the sport, how crazy has this year been compared to years past? It's been so much fun, and I think a lot of it, has to do, you know, at least in the Mid-Atlantic, there's been some great weather. I think the crowds have been really good. Uh, and the one thing I would say about the um, – it's almost like teams get three bites of the cherry these days. You get a chance to impress with your non-conference schedule, a couple pretty big early season games. Then you get a chance in your conference schedule to get into that four-team conference tournament, or six-team in the Patriot League's case, and then you could have a chance to, to win your conference tournament. So I think Quint or, or Dixon made the point earlier this week, you know, there's still 40-some teams that have a realistic shot at the NCAA tournament, and we're in mid-April. I think that's fantastic, and that's one of the real benefits to a conference tournament. So to, to admit, I, I actually did not see uh, when they started kicking these down and started initiating more than just an ACC uh, tournament. Yeah, it's really neat, man. It has been. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the Baltimore, D.C. area. You've been covering this area for since you started writing. Um, and there are, I think, eight teams total in the D.C. Baltimore area. Hopkins, Towson, UMBC, Loyola, Mount St. Mary's, Georgetown, Navy, and Maryland. Who, at this point, do you think is the best team in the area? Oh, Maryland. I think Maryland is going to the Final Four, and they might even be around uh, Memorial Day. I think that they have a very good – they always have that ironclad defense. They have a solid, you know, pretty good goalie. Uh, Burnlaw, obviously, returning first-team All-American. Uh, he's certainly good. Um, but I think they have some athletes this year. They have some horses that they didn't have in years past. You know, even even last year, that second midfield, uh, they didn't get a lot of production out of it. And this year, all three guys in their second midfield were not there last year. Two were injured, and the third was at UMBC. So I think that they can, you know, they play good slow, but they can, if you can get them in a running game, they do have the athletes and they do have the depth on offense for once to actually uh, be comfortable playing that. So I think they can play both ways. Uh, I'm very impressed by Maryland. Who's the next best team in the, in the area? 
Probably Navy, uh, I, and I appreciate that Hopkins beat Navy. So uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm jumping around a little bit here. But to me, Navy's defense, you know, Carl Temulevich, the great been for Navy back in the '60s, had a son who played at Towson, uh, AT around the time you were playing. And yeah. Carl says, you know, the great thing about this defense is that they attack the offense. Like they are very aggressive against the offense. They don't sit there and wait for the offense to do something and they react. You know, Ryan Wellner's defense. Uh, very skilled, very aggressive, very quick. You know, I'm telling you, uh, Reese and Fennell, number 10 and number 20 for Navy, a close defenseman along the committee would play anywhere. They would start almost anywhere. No, but I, I think, think, I, think they're, I think they're both teamers. I mean, I think, I think they're both teamers, yeah. both of those guys. Yeah, no question. No question. They're fantastic. And so you start there, you know, the short safety maybes are good. They're good going defense to offense. They have athletes, you know, and, and, and I just think they're very impressive. They certainly pass the eyeball test. They're more athletic than John Hopkins, which is not something we would say every year about Navy. No, it's very true. They just, and, and then you factor in the element that Navy plays, you know, uh, they just fear no one. And there's so much to be said for that because I just feel like the game has evolved to some degree into – you know, a a everybody's a little too nervous to run. Everybody's too nervous to press out around the perimeter. You know, right. I think the teams that are taking these chances are the ones that are really end up, you know, starting to stick out. Navy, in the case as it relates to defense, Brown as it relates to offense. You know, you look at Bucknell and Frank Rocco, what they've done with the 10-man ride, you know, in recent years. It's almost as though any program that commits itself to you know, sort of a, uh, you know, out of the ordinary approach is getting rewarded for that as long as it's, you know, along the aggressive line. And I'm so frankly, I'm a little surprised that more teams, you know, don't adopt that. I know that's certainly the way the game was played more often than not, you know, in the early 90s, as we said before, the days of basic cable, re- basic cable phones. But, but I think <laughs> we're starting to see the emergence of that trend Again, and we know obviously life is cyclical, and Navy's one of the teams that benefits from that approach on the defensive end. And I think Albany is too. You talk about a non, a little bit of an unorthodox offense, but they're not scared of anybody, and they do crazy no. things. And you know, starting with their team photos, apparently, which were shirtless, <laughs> and then you know, just sort of go into all the things they do. And, and um, Scott Mar will tell you, like, we just we, this should be fun. You know, this sport, our guys look forward to practice. I think Lars Tiffany says the same thing. Our guys look forward to practice. At Navy, they look forward to practice, but just because the rest of the day is so difficult. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it really is. It's, uh, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. Like, this is lacrosse. Like, at some level, this really should be fun, and I appreciate it. We can't be so naive to go too far the pendulum the other way. But if you can strike it in that middle, I, I think you really can strike some gold. And these teams have, Andy, and I think more might. For the last three teams to round out the top five, I would assume is Towson, Loyola, and Hop. In what order are you putting those three teams? I was actually going to put them in that order. Uh, Towson, Loyola, you know, again, um, Towson did beat them. I, I like Loyola. A, they have a very good second midfield. But B, they make such good decisions. You know, it's almost perfect about when they push and when they possess. You know, because they do like to run, but they don't. They're not reckless about it. And I just, they're so well coached. You know, they really catch the eye on some of their coaching, some of their athletes, some of their depth. Uh, I, I just don't know that their close defense is is quite there yet. So I would go Towson three, Loyola four, and Johns Hopkins five. Now, next mm-hmm. year, this list is going to look a little bit different because I think Hopkins is really going to have some home run hitters next year, guys who are out this year who are back. And, of course, the entire defense comes back. The goalie comes back. So I think next year Hopkins will be a, a fantastic team. But for this year, I really do think they're fifth. Sweeze, you know, just kind of from a press perspective, 
you know, obviously everybody who loves the sport wants to see it succeed, you know, on the national level, uh, you know, and, and, you know, having been a guy that is on the other side of it, you know, what, what does lacrosse need as a sport? And, and I'm speaking from the NCAA in the MLL perspective more than I am the NLL. And that's just selfish because I enjoy the NCAA and the MLL Mm -hmm. more. Uh, But, you know, what is, what does the sport need in order to transition into a more nationally covered sport, you know, more along the lines of, you know, football, baseball, hoop, and hockey. What is it? What what does it have that those other sports currently have? The biggest thing, and, and I appreciate Casey Powell has tried to rectify this, a video game would really help. You know, I can remember in the early 90s, the NHL took off because of NHL 94 on Sega. You know, look at FIFA and soccer. That FIFA video game is fantastic. And now there's kids in Howard County wearing Everton jerseys, you know, just for an example. I, I do think a video game on a disc, you know, I know Casey Powell's game was very good, got very well, very good reviews. But if we could take that next level, actually sell it in stores rather than have it be just a download. Um, and I accept that it's, it's a sort of a tricky game to create because there's so many things that go into lacrosse. But I do think a video game, um, and even if you get a college license or something, although I guess those are going to be tricky to get these days with EA Sports and that lawsuit. Um, <laughs> really interesting. But, yeah. but I, I would say a video game. You know, I think that's probably the, the main thing I, I would push. And after that, you know, the MLL rules, uh, yeah, honestly, I kind of like the two-pointer. Um, I just think we have to – you don't want teams to settle for that. You know, like the three-pointer in basketball, I think a lot of teams – just shoot threes now. They don't really go inside. I mean, there's hardly any forwards or centers anymore. It's become a very guard-oriented game. And I wouldn't want lacrosse necessarily to become straight outside shooting. Um, but I do – some of the things that the MLL done, has done, I think, don't work. And, and the two-point shot I actually kind of like. I think, I think there's no question that the two-point shot works. And I think that, you know, you get college guys taking that two-point shot. And I would assume that if they put something like that in – it wouldn't be at, you know, 16 yards or 15 yards. I, I don't know exactly where the MLL is. But, you know, I would assume they would have to bring it maybe a step or two in. Because currently in the college game, you know, outside of Perkovic, Ryan Brown, you know, probably a handful of other guys, there's not a lot of people that can actually hit that shot with consistency. No. Whereas you get to the MLL and now you've got the best of the best out there. You know, you got, you know, obviously better goaltenders, but I think you have more range on your shot as a 25, 26-year-old than you do as an 18 or 19-year-old. So I just think there's more people that can hit it in MLL. I would like to see a two-point shot in college across. I think it goes hand-in-hand with the shot clock. And frankly, you know, I, I, I like the MLL rules. And, uh, you know, I, I, think it's, I think they're almost the antithesis of the way the college game has played the MLL game, you can almost argue in years past there's been too much scoring where goals are right. trivialized when you watch it to the college game where, you know, the overall goal scored, you know, at least uh, up until the last few years, maybe not this year with the emergence of Brown and Albany, like you said, some others, but, you know, you almost got two different games. If we could split the middle with both of those games, I think that would be the perfect scenario for the viewing audience. I agree. It's one of the things, too, I follow cricket. Um, and one of the things in cricket, they always say you want a balance between the, the bowler, the pitcher, and the batter. You know, there has to be a balance between the bat and the ball. You don't want it to be all runs. You don't want it to be all wickets. And I think lacrosse needs to strike that balance as well, as you're saying. And if they can if they can do it, you know, I actually would prefer the MLL to be a little bit 
retro in the rules. I wish they would have like five long six or six long six like they did in the late 80s. You know, Dave Yurick That's really interesting. Said, yeah. That Dave Yurick said once when he was the coach at Hobart in the 80s, they used nine long six at one time against Syracuse, three for the ride, you know, just, just kind of being crazy. And then Dave looked <laughs> yep. at me and said, we're one of those teams they changed the rules for. <laughs> we did stuff that they changed the rules because we were so stupid about it. But, you know, <laughs> why not? We did the same thing in high school. I remember we had guys that – you know, were attack ride with the poles and and right. Uh, that's a really got a that's new a canon, really, right? Yeah, Buchanan High School, exactly right. Coach Pennock, same guy that made me run 17 sprints because I didn't slap somebody. <laughs> we Campbell did. That was a different podcast. It was a screw job. But the reality so, is that's a really interesting point squeeze. In fact, I would even go above and beyond that and say that the most exciting time, and certainly I'm going to say this because it was my era, but the most exciting time was when defensive players would get rewarded. For a right. nice check back in the days of Petro and Steve Kisslinger and Jeff Claus and Pat McCabe and you know Rick Beersley, the best takeaway defenseman in the country made the game very, very exciting to watch. And certainly, you know, the technology now creates the technology now, along with Bill Tierney's sort of hyper conservative defense by not, you know, but by, by eliminating, you know, penalties or trying to eliminate, you know, any any extra man opportunities for you know the teams that you play, which is really smart strategy. I think the problem with that is it's made the game a little less exciting. And in the process of doing that and eliminating the reward by you know the reward of, of creating a turnover and a transition opportunity off a good check around the perimeter has has you know eliminated a certain level of excitement to the game. And now the problem is is that if they do go back to creating incentive there who are the guys that are going to go teach these checks to people? Because they're all extinct. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, that's, that's the problem, you know? Well, it was amazing. I've been crunching numbers just because I'm a lax nerd. Uh, uh, you know, unlike you guys who are, who are completely with it and cool. But anyway, I'm the lax nerd of this group. But I, when I go back and crunch numbers, you know, 1975, Navy averaged 53 shots a game. You know, wow. in this Navy team, yes, they do run and they're good. In the 04 team, they made the title game. You know, they were in the you know high 30s, low 40s uh, shots per game. So, I mean, that's that's almost a shot. You know, that's what three, four shots per quarter more just for one team. So, right. you know, and more more ground balls. There were higher save numbers too, which I, I actually can't quite correlate yeah but but i just think the game back then you know you really did run it was a lot more of a soccer or a hockey than what this has become which is almost a, a almost a football type in the preparation and again it's fun to watch i love it especially when the weather's good you know i don't i think it's the best deal in town going to a maryland navy game tonight free parking ten dollar tickets this is not a plug by the way but i'm just saying as an example you know georgetown is free parking i think you know eight to ten dollar tickets you're sitting outside on a great night in great weather watching amazing teams like that's a, you're not going to find that deal in a major market for any pro sport. So I, that, that might answer your previous question, but, but, but just overall, you know, I, I think there's a lot to recommend this sport and, and you know, maybe you've got to loosen the reins a little bit and, and coaches are the biggest copycats too. Um, and I kind of felt like, you know, Loyola won the title in 2012 running, you know, they averaged what 42, 43 shots a game. They ran. And I remember Charlie Toomey up at Foxborough in the final four saying, uh, he had to bite a hole in his tongue sometimes because the guys were taking shots in transition, and he just thought, I don't know, that was what we wanted to do. You know, even the right. regular season finale against Johns Hopkins, Hawkins came down and took a shot. Hawkins saved it, went down and scored to tie the game. So you're thinking, eh, maybe that wasn't the best shot, but Loyola won the title, and they got they got them where they wanted to go. And, and I kind of wonder if the way Loyola played 
isn't the reason that maybe Brown and Penn and, and you know, some of these other teams are starting to, to, to look at, to go a little bit up-tempo because Brown and Thomas are loyal and Albany have had success with it. So, Sleeves, let's get to the dirt, baby. Let's get really down and dirty on this podcast. You know, you're okay. one of the guys – you're one of the guys out there that always has an ear to the ground on potential changes, movement in NCAA Division One lacrosse head coaching world. Uh, I've always appreciated your insight every time when things come about, where changes are being made. Uh, but certainly, we already have an opening in Division One lacrosse with Princeton. Who, in your opinion, would be the best fit for that Princeton program moving forward? Who do you think is the next guy for the job? Now, it's a great question because I think they have a couple options. You know, if they want to go to the root of the guys who were there with Bill Tierney, you would look at a, a Sean Nadlin. Uh, you would look at um, Greg Raymond, who's at Hobart now. Nadlin's at Towson, uh, and his team is ranked fourth in our in our D.C. rankings. But anyway, um, so you would, I, you know, you could look at those guys. You know, the young coaches, I'm telling you, there's a handful of incredible coaches, you know, in, in those kind of startup programs. I really like Ryan Pauley at BU. Uh, Dan Shamadi at Richmond, you know, when I talk to the high school coaches or the people who really interact at the game at that level and ask them, which coaches catch your eye? Shamadi's name comes up almost every time. And I think people are really impressed with him. Paulie's name will come up a lot too. You, you could go the assistant route, uh, you know, certainly Simon Connor at uh, Villanova, you know, Wellner, we mentioned earlier at Navy. Um, you know, there's a lot of very good assistants out there as well. I actually really like Justin Ward at Georgetown. Uh, he's really been impressed. To, I, I appreciate they haven't had a very good year this year, but the work he does with, with attackmen, especially coming from X and the work they do behind the goal, I think Bo Stafford, the big year Stafford had last year, the Connecticut guy for you, AT. And when That's I right, asked him, where, so where did this come from, from Stafford? And I said, Justin Ward. You know, and Stafford had a career year. Um, so, you know, if I'm Princeton, I'll probably want a guy who's already been a head coach. Um, so maybe not the assistant route, but but I think there's a lot of options on the table for them. And again, you can go either the tyranny kind of legacy route, or you can can go go a different route. So you know, no one likes to do this and speculate about jobs, but if you could pick a couple schools uh, that may be changing uh, courses after this season, where would you uh, where would you point your finger towards? Yeah, it's an interesting. You know, it's almost like it, this could be a really is a off season for that. Again, I, I think a lot of people are looking at Virginia. Uh, no, it's really not going to break this year that, that they've been disappointing the past couple of years. Is this the last year of Tom Starge's contract? You know, do they give him another year? I'd say it's probably 50, 50 at least, you know, I mean, we could have that debate all day long. Um, but yes, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I just, you know, there's certainly jobs like that, that, that are very attractive. And as, if one of those goes, I think you guys have said this before, if one of those goes, the dominoes are going to fall quickly, and it could be an incredibly busy coaching carousel. You know, we haven't had one of these crazy off-seasons probably since uh, Joe Bresci left Ohio State for North Carolina, and that kind of got a few chips going, or, or even, you know, Bill yep. Kearney leaving for Denver. Um, and I think we might be in for one of those tech deals this summer, or next summer for sure, but, but one, you know, and possibly both. But I do think that, that – uh, from what I understand, you know, the alums are very unhappy at Virginia, and I'm curious to see what happens. Of course, they still have Georgetown and Brown. If they win both those, they have a decent at-large um, Well, resume, Georgetown's so. not going to get George, – Georgetown's not getting them anything. You know, uh, Brown <laughs> no. Brown, Brown certainly could, but Brown is – Brown gets them in 87. I just don't see 
Virginia making it even if they beat Brown. You know, they have played a tough schedule, but but you never know. You know, you never know. Hopkins wins the Big Ten. Hopkins wins the Big Ten. Richmond wins the SoCon. You know, all of a sudden now they've got wins against the field. But I agree, I think it's a long shot. Yeah, you you never know. I I will say that I think that there are more great coaches, young coaches, in the game right now at the Division One level and even at the Division Three level when you factor in you know, John Thompson and, and Mike Daly and some of these other guys. Right. You know, I, I think there are more great coaching candidates uh, than there are places to coach at than ever before. You know, along the lines, obviously, we talked about Shamadi and Poli. You know, I would throw John Torpy in there for sure, Taylor Ray sure. In there for sure. Uh, you know, the amount Joe of Amplo. great uh, – Joe Amplo is another one. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just – there's a lot of a lot of coaches out there – that you know, Princeton can't screw this up. You know, it's, it's, they, 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 <laughs> you wouldn't they could think. hire one. They could hire one of eight guys and and be great. In fact, if I was them, I'd go right after Brian Volker. That's what I would do. But and again, he, yeah, uh, a tyranny assistant. Yeah, tyranny assistant and a proven winner, and you know, one of the best people in the sport, one of the best coaches, coming off a huge year, a huge few years, a couple of years. Obviously, they're struggling a little bit this year, but you know that that's you're sort of expected to be a little cyclical when you're on, you know, at some of these programs. And I think that's a reflection, but, um, you know, again, they, there, there are, you know, there are a really solid group of guys that they can go after and fill that job with that, you know, look, people look at that job, you factor in all the revenue that, you know, they can make with the camps and the out of season clinics and all right. that sort of stuff. I mean, that's a, that's a big time opportunity and you're taking over a program, you know, that despite the incident up at Brown with Coach Bates, you know, the, the opportunity to go in there to Princeton and, and have an immediate impact on improving their record can be very, very attractive to these coaches looking to solidify, you know, uh, their footprint in the sport moving ahead. So it's going to be really yeah. interesting to see how this plays out. I, I agree. And the one thing I would consider, you know, I think Shamati and Torpy and, um, Amplo, these, you know, Poli, these guys all get credit. But they did start from the ground up. You know, they did start those programs. Those programs are in their image. They're not building on someone else's image. They're not recruiting someone else's kids. Those were all their kids. This is their deal. And Princeton is not. They did not recruit anyone, you know, to Princeton if they were to take that job. It's a really interesting dynamic. You know, how, what is the next step for the guys who did startup programs? It's a really, 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 it's a really, really good point that you made there, Sweeves. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, try to create a winning culture out of a place that doesn't have any culture because it hasn't been a program, and it's an entirely different scenario, and in my opinion, more challenging to take over a traditionally losing culture uh, and turn that into a winner. I mean, I know about that firsthand up at Dartmouth, yeah. And and the, uh, oh, I I will give Dartmouth credit, their website for lacrosse has stats going back to the 1940s. Have you seen this? It's unbelievable. No. Their website is fantastic. Even Dan, he is in there somehow. Like, oh boy, I didn't think he graduated. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I didn't verify that. Uh, the Dartmouth Lacrosse website is amazing. It, UMass did the same, uh, but Dartmouth actually has like the actual PDFs of the, the hand hand type stats from you know typewriter stats from 1976. It's really great. I, I'll yes. give them a plug. And UMass does the same thing. They have all. They don't have the PDFs, but they do have – and Loyola, too. Those are the three websites that have done a great job with their archives. But anyway, right, right. Um, you got to have the AD, too. You know, I think uh, one of the things that maybe they 
Shek Glycek deserves an awful lot of credit. He gave Rick Soul time. You know, I think there were a lot of people who were ready to give up on him after year two, year three. You know, you're, that's the place I think you could get a big-time coach, given the location, given the history, given the facilities. Uh, and, you know, they, now they did, you know, he has the full-time strength and conditioning. You know, they, they travel pretty well. Uh, but, but, you know, they really turned it around. And I don't know that there are a lot of people who thought Rick Soul could get Navy to be this good. And he and his staff are fantastic. And so you have to have the right AD, too. I think that's part of it. And if I were a coach I, I, looking, I'd say, how many, how many years am I going to get? No, no question about it. But I think the other thing is to remember that the ADs aren't going to be quick to bounce somebody out after two years. Because what does that do? That's a reflection upon them being wrong yeah, true. in their evaluation during, you know, the hiring process. You know, uh, as it relates to Gladstone, look, you know, Ricky Soul, all he's done is proven he's a winner everywhere he's gone. Uh, yep. You know, from Dartmouth doing incredible to winning, you know, the Ivy Championship through, I know at St. John's he wasn't there long enough, but then went to the same thing to Stony Brook, got them to the quarterfinals, and now he's in a year where I think, you know, Navy, I think we all feel as a quarterfinal team, and they have the potential to, to do, you know, to be a Final Four team. It's not more. Sure, so, they get the right matchup, you know, Ricky, sure. Ricky's a pro- proven winner with the right matchups. We got a okay. couple of questions we've been asking everyone that's come on our show. Uh, the first one, rules. Are you in favor of seeing the shot clock in men's lacrosse in the near future? I am, but, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been at a game and a team will take possession and say, well, this is going to take 90 seconds, you know, and they've just taken the flow out of the game because they're ahead by two and they want to sit on the ball. And if I were coaching, I'd be very tempted to do the same thing. I'm not casting aspersions. I'm just saying as a fan, I've seen that a lot. That said, I do worry about, you know, does, is everyone going to pack it in as his own defense? Um, you know, the NBA, when they went to a shot clock, I think outlawed zone defense, at least initially. I think you can play it now. But So I just really worry that our sport will become almost slower with the shot clock. But, but yes, technically I am in favor, yes, but I do think they need to, to iron some things out. I, I, I don't think there's any question that the game desperately needs a shot clock. Uh, I, you know, I just feel that we're going to look back after they institute the shot clock, and Ryan and I spoke about this on a few podcasts ago. They're going to look back and they're going to say, "Wow, I can't believe that we actually played this game without a shot clock." You know, I don't know how much right. I don't know how many of the women's games that you've seen before, but the women's game absolutely needs a shot clock. I was at you know a Dartmouth Maryland game, women's game, you know, four years ago, and Maryland was up by three goals on Dartmouth, and they just hung out the side and we all just watched the clock go from six minutes to zero and they never overextended against the game. I'm like, we could have been out of here. You know, I could have been on my second year full white by the time that the game had finished. It was just ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculous. And I think that the game desperately needs it. Let's face it. The tempo is more like basketball. It's not like hockey. Hockey, you know, it's a perpetually unsettled sport, you know, more so like soccer, but faster. Basketball the tempo at basketball and lacrosse is identical. You know, you can play up tempo like the like the right. Lakers in the 80s, or you can play, you know, slower tempo like the Celtics did in the 80s. And and, and a shot clock, I think, is absolutely a necessity in games where tempo control can dictate the outcomes of games. And so I, I just I think it absolutely has to happen. You're not worried about the proliferation of zones or, or even the game getting slower because no, you would take I, that I, whole 60 I'm, seconds or I'm not, you know, I, I, I really am not. I think that, 
um, I think people are still going to push unsettled opportunities. And I think that given the quick restarts, given, uh, you know, the, the, the way the game has evolved, I just feel that, you know, people aren't going to not push a four-on-three break to suck clock down. If they do okay. that, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be conducting national podcasts like I am instead of maintaining <laughs> their college jobs. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, what about face-offs? I was interested to hear Quint during the uh, Notre Dame-Syracuse broadcast talking about how Jim Beheim is a great lacrosse fan, but he doesn't understand why our sport still has face-offs. Where are you on that one? I couldn't be more in favor of the face-off. Okay. I think it's one of the best aspects of the game. I think that it allows teams to compete that may not have an opportunity to do so. Uh, you know, I think that it creates opportunities for players that may not have an opportunity. Uh, I, I just think that the game is, I think it's one of the most exciting facets of the game and that along with goaltending, you know, are sort of two uh, areas of the game outside of the obvious offense and defense that, that have a, you know, uh, an impact on what actually decides it. So, you know, it's not like a jump ball after every basket, which would be, you know, 50 jump balls. It's, it's, right. I think it's, I think it's a great part of the game. I think the rules committee did an awesome job by instituting the rule change in that getting the sticks down, having them set and then putting the ball in. I think it's cleaned up that aspect of the game uh, very, very well. And as a result, you see a lot less jumps. And I just think that we're getting the upside of it without the downside. A few years ago, though, when everybody was rolling into the move and, and you know, there were a ton of jumps, I do think that the rule of three jumps in a half leads to an extra man. I think that rule needs to be uh, changed now. And because you're just not seeing a lot of jumps, I just think it's too extreme. And you do it early enough in the half, and it can change the outcome of a game unfairly and irresponsibly. You know, I, sure. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't be opposed to three jumps and you go extra man, and then you get another three. Uh, but again, I just what about I, I, what about five for the entire game? Like you kind of foul a lot of basketball, you got five chances, and therefore at the end of the game, it could change the atmosphere because it's like, man, I can go to the front end of the whistle. I've got four. I've got four to kill. You know what I mean? I'm, I got to go all or nothing here. So there's yeah. no pressure if you only have one through the whole game, and at the end of the quarter, you're looking to go all or nothing. You can't because you're not going to get penalized for it, other than you know the ball immediately. And I, and I will That's say, I was watching this, the 79 Hopkins-Maryland game the other night, and remember that was the year they did not have face-offs, and it was really kind of jarring almost to see a goal, and then they're at midfield just taking the ball out. You don't even have to clear. You just got the ball at midfield if you gave up the goal. At the very least, if you get rid of the face-offs, I think you have to clear a full end, almost like a inbounding in basketball. But I, yeah. I, I like the face-off, too. I have to admit, I just thought I'd bring it up because uh, I'm hearing it more than I thought I would that people saying maybe we should limit it to just at the start of the quarters and, and things like that. I don't know. I hope it doesn't happen. What about the dive squeeze? Are you in favor of that coming back? Uh, it was so fun back in the day. I love, I used to love it, but I, I, you know, I think Lars Tiffany had a pretty good point on your podcast last week. I know he's in favor of it. He may have swayed me a little bit. I have to admit, I still think it's a little, a little dangerous. You know, I, um, all it takes is one bad injury and all of a sudden the dive is gone, but then we've had a bad injury. You know, so so Swedes, so Swedes, let me Swedes, let me ask you a second level question. As somebody who has sure. seen more lacrosse games than <laughs> the other two guys on this podcast, and uh, and, 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 and played it far fewer, I will add that too. Yeah, but yes, please go ahead. Well, the the reality is, give me 
an example of when a goalie was hurt by the dive. Oh, oh so I'm thinking more of the player. Like even last time in that Capitals game where the guy got, you know, hit his head into the, um, the Capitals player hit his head into the boards. You know, if you hit your head into that goal, or even, you know, I remember... But, but, the but did it, has it ever happened? Do you ever remember it happening? I mean, I remember Ducky Knight well, getting up every time. No, true, but it also, we haven't had to, to worry about it for several years. Good point. So, so during I, the I mean, time you know, before it was outlawed, are there any instances where you remember either the diver or the goalie or anybody affiliated with the play actually getting hurt as a result of the dive? Because I certainly don't. Not any, I don't. I, I don't either. And certainly not anything that would have caused them to leave the game or, you know, and certainly nothing permanent. I, I cannot know. So, uh, you know, I, I make that point simply because I feel like you know, the game is celebrated for the creativity of the players that are playing it, and it goes you know, sort of hand-in-hand hand with the game, you know, kind of started with the Gates, uh, you know, doing that stuff, and it, 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 it reached its, you know, I thought, pinnacle with Dougie Knight and Michael Watson. Sure. But then all of a sudden, we weren't, we weren't able to do it anymore. I just feel like it's lost, you know, a certain – I just don't see the downside of it. You know, what's the downside of it? Okay. If, if we can't come up with injuries – what, why wouldn't we have it? No, that's certainly fair. And I would, I mean, it was, it was great to watch back in the day, I'll admit. So it's okay. If they bring it back, I'll be happy. But if you're asking me, uh, you know, again, I'm still on the fence, the shading toward no. Last question. Memorial Day weekend. It's come up year in, year out. And obviously, you know, they just announced Fox Sparrow's the new home for the 2017 and 2018 national championships, final four and the national championships. Are you a traditionalist? Do you believe that the national championship and the semifinals should be played on the same weekend, on Memorial Day weekend? Or do you feel like, which a lot of D1 coaches do feel like, um, that this we've grown from that and we need to space it out. We need to push the season back a little bit because of the weather on the front end, but also because the lacrosse is such a different game from the semifinals, which is the most beautiful lacrosse you'll see all year to a little bit of a choppy slugfest in the national championship basically 36 hours later. Uh, What are your thoughts on the Memorial Day weekend? I'm a huge fan of moving it. Even just a week, uh, you would see a much better game. You know, I was reading something the other night where I think seven of the first eight or nine NCAA tournament title games were one-goal games, and, you know, Cornell in Maryland was, what, 16-13, but it went overtime. You know, the, back then it was not sun-death overtime in 76. And some of these games were just classic, you know, back and forth. And, and then you get to the current. I, I can't remember the last time there was a great title game. Um, so, right. you know, moving it a week, I think, and if you put it someplace like Navy, of course, Navy can't really do a Final Four because they have the graduation. The graduation is always a Friday before Memorial Day. So there's no way I think they could clean your stage and, and have teams do a walkthrough. But if you push it back a week, um, you know, even if it's just that one week, even if you're just moving it to the first week in June, I think Navy would be a perfect host or a school like that. Um, and it would be a much better game. And I think you have the whole week of publicity. You can do, you know, Kevin Warren at Georgetown. His idea is to have, you know, just almost replicate the Final Four weekend, what it is now, have the D2 title game, D3 title game, and D1 title game, and then Memorial Day weekend, you'd have those semifinals. You know, it's amazing to me when I walk out of the, and I guess we should call it championship weekend. But anyway, when I walk out of championship weekend of the Final Four, it's amazing how many times people ask me, oh, how was it? I'll say, oh, Tufts was incredible, 52 shots, 10 turnovers. I'm talking about the D3 game. You know, I talk about the D2 game. I, I rarely talk about that D1 title game, even though that, that's technically the best game of the year and the game that we all wait for. And, and 
guess what? Those D2 and D3 teams have a full week to prepare. So, I, no, I'm a, huge, I'm a huge fan of moving it, but I would like it to be in concert with the other two because I think that was very smart with the NCAA they did in the mid-'90s. My one concern, because, of course, I overthink things, is that I do worry about the conference tournaments being a two-ice and three-day format and is that the only time we're going to do that? Because I think that those are very important games. And to do that just once, to have only one, to have that be only once in your schedule, twice in three days, you know, now do we look at the conference tournaments? Because maybe we should, because those are hugely important uh, events and outcomes. But yes, I, I, the short answer is yes, I'm in favor of it. I, I, those are great points. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I was also a huge fan of when they had the D2 and the D3 games, you know, on that Sunday sort of preceding the the, right. the, the Monday's championship. I loved that. You know, you just didn't get a chance to watch any of the D2, D3 games. And they were some of, like you said, some of the very best games to watch, you know, on the weekend. And I just feel like it's great for the sport for Everybody who loves to watch it to see just how good the game is played at the D two D in the D three level. I mean, it's not that far behind. No, one team. Would all. they beat the D one teams? No, they, they wouldn't beat the best D one teams. But their best players oftentimes are every bit as good as the best players, you know, on division one, on the division one rosters. And it's great to showcase their respective skills, you know, for once during the year because you simply don't get to see D two D three play on TV ever outside of those no. respective times. So I agree with you. Is it kid Hossack, the long six minute RIT is fabulous. And I wouldn't have known right. that if they hadn't made the title game and I saw him. And by the way, RIT has another one of those Dartmouth like websites where they have all the archive stats going back to the fifties. I just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> You're a sick kid. You're a sick kid Sweet. I love that. Oh boy. <laughs> well sweet we can't thank you enough, man. This was a trip down history lane. Uh we learned a lot. I love your angle on a lot of things. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, look for Sweezy's articles in Inside the Cross. You can also check out his articles in the Washington Post. This guy is a monster. He pumps out so much content on the world of Division One uh, college across, certainly in the Baltimore, D.C. area. Again, thanks a lot, Sweezy. Uh, we're looking forward to having you back on very soon, too. Oh, no it's doubt, my pleasure. Sweezy. I'd love Appreciate to come it. on anytime. Yeah, thanks for having thanks. me. Go Huskers. You make the sport better, go Huskers. I like it, Sweezy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, AT.